Tonight on the DTD podcast, we have Clay Tweel. He just made this amazing documentary for HBO Max. It's called Heaven's Gate, and it's one of the craziest stories you will ever hear. So let's get right into it. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious, and don't call me sure. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. I've been waiting for this one for a while. I went on to Twitter. I saw this documentary. Back up. I saw this documentary, went on Twitter, looked for this guy. He answered right up. And we're here to talk about Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Colts. It is a brand new documentary that's only on HBO Max, and it is fantastic. It tells the story of Heaven's Gate. It's a cult that was started way back in the 70s. It ended in a mass suicide, and there's still floaters out there somewhere. So without further ado, let's welcome the director, Clay Tweel. How are you, man? All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. So Heaven's Gate, wow. I had heard of these guys before, but this documentary opened my eyes wide open to this. This is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. So let's talk about it a little bit. It was started in about 75 that Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles had got together. They they got their names Doe and T from The Sound of Music because... uh, Bonnie really liked that musical, and so they started this cult, and it was kind of a transcendent religious group. So if you can talk a little bit about the cult right off the bat, please, by all means, explain it a little better than I can. Sure. So when they first started, actually, they called uh, the group was called um, Human Individual Metamorphosis. And uh, it was a very, like, they there was a combination of the UFO aspect of things, but also a reinterpretation of the book of Revelation in the Bible. So, um, but one thing that really made it different than what it evolved to later was it was really emphasizing the individual part of that, human individual metamorphosis. So everybody had their own path that they had to go on um, that would purify their bodies, purify their souls so that they could literally biologically and chemically change into an alien that would be then lifted up into outer space on a UFO. So um, T and Doe at that time, as they were called, I think in 75, they were called Bo and Peep still. Um, They were trying to guide you in a very, with a very loose set of principles on how to um, do this process and and change. But it was really like, we're going to show you these signposts, but you have to sort of do the work on your own and everyone's going to figure it out sort of on their own time, own dime kind of thing. And, um, and so it was very much, it was, it was pretty loose and, and um, you just had to go out and travel around and, you know, help try to recruit other people um, and give up all of your humanly possessions, give up your kids, give up your, you know, your money, your house, your everything. And just, be uh like a yeah transient and um and that would help you attain the spiritual enlightenment and so you know i think it's for me one of the fascinating parts is like seeing how that that rugged individualism then shifted and changed over the years and so with all the groups out there because i want to talk tonight about heaven's gate but there's a couple others out there of jonestown and things like that the waco um some very famous cults that have been in the news uh and had their own crazy stories what was it about this group that made you decide that's it because you're known for documentaries you have gleason out of omaha print the legend finders keepers innocent man Uh, you're all over the place and 
I would say that each of those documentaries are different from each other. So what was it about this group that said, that's the ones that we got to do next? Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I, I sort of pride myself and love taking on different kinds of stories and trying to find different genres. And um, so, but I, I will say that there is, there's a little bit of a loose connection here in this project to uh, finders keepers, because I think that in both instances, there's like salacious, wacky, weird headlines. Um, and my perspective is always to try to like find the human pathos behind what brought these people to, to the situation that created this insane headline, you know? And, and like, there's all, to me, there's always going to be a, a good story that, that leads up to that. Um, and I feel like trying to, for me as a storyteller, trying to get to the heart of like why people do what they do um, and tell the story behind the story. So like, that's what I'm into. Um, and finders keepers is, you know, for your, for your listeners, like two guys battling over the custody of a human leg in North Carolina is pretty <laughs> insane. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and they're um, pretty, uh, they're pretty dead set on getting that leg. So yeah. Oh yes. Take over many years followed that story. So, um, yeah, for, for heaven's gate. I mean, I remember this when it happened in 97, I was in high school and I remember all the same things that most people do, like the Nikes and the purple shrouds and the weird haircuts. And so I, I just like was fascinated to learn more. And um, so what how this came to be just for a second was I finished The Innocent Man. I'd worked with Ross Dinnerstein and the people over at Campfire Productions. And they were like, well, we just got the rights to this 10 part podcast and that uh, Stitcher did. And we want you to listen to it and see if you're interested and I listened to it and I, I really loved it and thought that it was unique because you did get to hear a lot of the members talk and a lot of the former family uh, family members of former members speak. And it just was really, it was gut-wrenching, but unique to me. So how many years are we talking about research into this and actually filming? We were able to draft off the podcast and their research and really try to, you know, compile what they had and then um, take it and go a step further and dig for a matter of months um, before we started interviewing people. So we did research from like um, March of 2019 until July. And then we started shooting in July. Um, and then we stopped in, we stopped shooting in, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit sort of March of 2020 and we've been editing ever since. And, uh, and we're racing to, to get this show out before the end of the year. And so is it hard to find these people? Because there's some there's some pretty deep interviews. I mean, to, to some of the people that you guys oh, yeah. talk to in this movie, is it is it hard to find these people? Is it easy? Are they kind of hesitant to talk? Or are they are they like, hey, this story needs to get out there and you need to hear this side of it? No, super hesitant and very sensitive because um, people have been telling their stories for a long time and taking advantage of them or portraying them in, in a light that they do not um, approve of or um, so the, it was it was hard to even though the podcast had come before us and had contact with these people it was still difficult um, and you know getting someone to talk into a microphone is different than getting them to talk into a camera there's like right. there is a shift when you put the lens on someone so um, there's a little more pressure but you know and in doing so I, in trying to assure people that I really wanted to like hear their full story, that was my approach and how I interviewed them too. So for like Sawyer and Frank, some of these former members, like I think I interviewed Sawyer for seven straight hours and it was the longest interview I've ever done in my life. Um, but I wanted to make sure that he was able to get out all the things that he wanted to. And he, you know, of course we're going to have to edit it down and get it right. into a, proper um fit for the edit but like you know for the for the show but i wanted to allow him to to say all the things that he wanted to say um and i just want to make sure sawyer is the one with the beard right he is yes and so th th let's talk about him for a minute because there were some things that i thought about him during it he seemed very um connected to the group he he seemed very like he was still into i guess the idea of the group not necessarily still doing what that group did but very behind the idea of it that that transcendental 
kind of metamorphosis of him. What struck out to me, though, about him was that he would talk about these things, but then every opportunity that he had to do one of those things in the group, the castrations or whatever, he uh, ended up not doing those things. So I, I really saw like a, a dichotomy with him where he seemed very much part of the group. And then when it came to really proving that he was part of the group, he never really did. Am I, am I off on that? Or is that the feelings that you got from him too while interviewing him? No, that's the feeling I got exactly. I think that you're hitting the nail on the head of this sort of dichotomy and this tension within Sawyer. That he he very much wants to be following this group, but but fights like there's something in him that fights against it as well. And I think that that tension was something I recognized in in the podcast. Even it was just like, man, I really have to go talk to this guy. I want to hear what he has to say, and I want to you know experience that myself because I can hear it. Um, but I think for me, where I come down on Sawyer is I think that the the uh, like ethos of the group was to disconnect yourself from your humanness, to try to be able to become these next level sort of alien beings and get rid of all your, anything that makes you human. And the problem for Sawyer in my estimation is that he's just an incredibly human person. He is like, he's incredibly vulnerable and genuine and, and like, he just can't help but be those things. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, heartbreaking to watch that, that tension with him all the time. And I think to, to take it to one more level with him is I think that, I don't know if it's regret that you see in him at kind of towards the end of the documentary, or if, if, if it's a relief from him, like, man, am I glad I didn't do that stuff. But then he's like, but then talking about it, I think he feels, I don't want to use the word coward or anything like that, but he feels like he should have done more to prove that he was part of the group. But you can also see that in his face, like, man, am I glad I didn't do that? Cause that was crazy. And yeah. And, and that's what I got from him was that I think that you see within these groups with him, especially that as, as much as you're into it, cause he was around for a long time there's just some things that, that people just can't go for. And it's, it's amazing to me to see that they're so committed to this group, but it gets to something like, well, it's not a small thing, but castration and stuff. And, and he even talked about going ahead with it and doing it. And then of course he didn't do it, but I could see that not in a lot of the members in that documentary. A lot of those people were, I mean, they were dead set on what they were going to do. Well, I mean, some of the sociologists talked about this is like what cults and groups like this are really looking for is what they call true believers, people that will completely give themselves over to another, uh, to a belief system and and to another person, meaning to another person in a lot of different ways. But in, in Heaven's Gate parlance, that's like giving yourself and trusting only tea and dough. Every, you know, like basically they have the sole access to the truth and anything they say goes. And if they're, and if their belief system shifts over the years and things, you know, they say one thing one year and then the next thing they say something different, like which that's happens okay multiple because, times, which happens. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, a true believer is someone who can rationalize that and st- still stay with the group. So let's talk about tea and dough for a little bit. Um, I want to go first into dough, Marshall Applewhite. Now, he was a teacher at one point. Everyone said he was very charismatic, that that he got along. He was fired for a um, supposed sexual relationship with one of his male students from the University of St. Thomas, Houston. And he seemed to kind of, even though there's no real interviews with him in the movie, he seems to really latch on to Bonnie Nettles. Mm-hmm. Now, there's there's a lot of kind of contra I don't know if I'd say controversy on the internet, but he met her at a mental hospital where he was visiting a friend, but there's other people that say he was actually a patient there and that, that he came across her. Which camp do you go in for that? Because I felt from the documentary it was that he was a patient. <laughs> we I mean we heard both and we sort of presented it as both. But like cause I'd say like uh, half the really like half the people 
gave us one story and half the other. So we had to decide. And so we, in the, in the series, we presented as like, this is the, the version that a friend of his heard secondhand. And then you have um, Doe giving his version, which like makes him look better. And so that's the one that he's promoting. You know what I mean? Um, so a lot of the former members don't necessarily buy the idea that Doe, or they don't promote the idea that Doe was a mental patient himself in any way, but some of the other academics and other people that were not former members do say that. So, you know, it's like conflicting field data and, you, and we try to honor both versions as best we could. And and I know you might not want to answer it, but what, what camp do you go in with it? What, which more do you believe in? Because the story for me is very hard to believe that he was visiting a friend at a a mental hospital, but he met Bonnie Nettles in the delivery. I didn't. Well, she was at the same hospital, you know, just in separate sections, I guess. Right. Right. I mean, and I don't know what the layout of that uh, hospital in Houston would be, whether it's like, you know, like the, the delivery wards on the third floor and then, you know, the, the mental care is on the second floor. Yeah, dude, I right. have no idea. Well, you probably want to put the babies as far away from that as possible. But but what's probably, funny yeah. is that he meets her and she kind of brings up the ideas for this extraterrestrials and the, the, that she has like this kind of foretold path. And he really latches on to that. And mm-hmm. it seemed strange to me that He's kind of he's kind of painted by everyone that has talked about him in the media and stuff that that he has these wacky ideas and he's this crazy person. But for the majority of it, until after uh, T passes, he's following her. And even after she's gone, kind of in the afterlife, he's following what he thinks she would be doing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's something I didn't know um, before listening to the the podcast and so i was like man there was a co-leader for the first 10 years that's wild i had no idea and it's a woman which is very unusual um and you know her whole vibe was not to really say much or do much publicly but she was the the puppet master behind the scenes and you know so we were looking like crazy to find any video of her talking which there really isn't any we found some audio tapes of them um where she is talking and so it's a it's it's a little strange to hear this seemingly, you know, she got a little bit of a Texas drawl mm-hmm. and like he- hearing that accent. Um, she's definitely a, can be stern at times, but like, I don't know, there's just like something that feels a little sweet about her sometimes as well. Um, so it, she's a real enigma. Um, Bonnie Lou Nettles T she's, she's, I think really complicated um, and, and hard to figure out like, how is this lady the, the the engine that is running this group? Well, and you know, and you mentioned that, and, and she is very much so an enigma, but when you talk to her daughter in the documentary, and her daughter talks a lot about that she doesn't believe that that she really wanted to be there that whole time, that she had kind of a change of heart. Now, what was interesting to me was is that, you know, they told everyone, give up your family, stay away from them, don't write letters. Now, of course, there's the 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 Christmas newsletter and stuff like that, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But this entire time, she's telling all these followers, uh, give your families up, don't write letters. She's writing letters to her daughter. And you can see over time in the letters, her kind of attitude and kind of focus shifts, but it never goes back to the group. And it's weird that she talks to her her daughter and tells her all these things, but never takes the ideas back. Is that out of a loyalty to maybe Doe or a loyalty to the group or to maybe not look like a fraud? What what was it? Because she definitely, from reading the stuff, she definitely was not feeling it the same as she was in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to rely on the people that we talk to. And so right. one of the people we talk to is Robert Balch, who was you know an, a sociologist who infiltrated the group in 1975 and spent months with them and then he tracked them over the, the duration of their existence and would you know do exit interviews with people when they would leave he would track them down he knows a lot and so he in his opinion um it was just that the uh the fact that it was hard for t to try to leave the group 
And it was a lot easier for her to, you know, if she went back to her old life, she'd have to explain to her family and friends, you know, what she did and why she would leave them. And, and um, it would just be too hard. So the easy, the path of least resistance in his mind was to actually stay. Um, and she had, uh, it reminds me of like, you ever heard of the, the sunken cost theory? Where you've got so much invested that, that it's, there's yep. no reason to put, you're, you're going to lose it anyway. So, um, exactly. Well, and in speaking about her, so she, she develops, um, brain cancer, she dies and no one ever lets her family know. And she was at, at one point, she was very close. She was like an hour away from her family. I, mm-hmm. I, I get a shift right here of where this is where the group starts taking a wrong turn. Uh, as she kind of takes away that, that matronly uh, unit in the group, I think we see a shift with Doe where we start to see a real cult becoming where it's follow me. And you can see it in the videos when all the teaching videos that he has, when he starts out, he's just talking normal. And as it goes on and it progresses, his eyes get wider. There's a very much change in his demeanor in his face. And I, I I believe, like I said, that this is where the shift happened. Do you believe, or was it later on when the shift came? Yeah, no, I think that that is absolutely the shift. I mean, there's one detail that I remember that Frank told me too that that I'll never forget, which was that, you know, like again, one of the lasting images that I had was that Doe in those final years with the really big eyes and looking crazy, and and Frank was like, yeah, he was doing that on purpose because what he told us was that he felt like with his eyes, the wider his eyes were, the more human he was. So he was trying to pretend, he almost was like, I'm an alien, I need to pretend to be human. And humans like big expressions, so I'll do those. Which is just such a weird train of thought. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that that really seeing this, having the, uh, the sole focus be on him, is um i mean that's where most of these groups sort of go wrong like it's our it's our human ego it's it's uh you know power corrupts as they say and that that just gets proven over and over again you you keep placing this trust in this person and um allowing them to do whatever they want and they get they get sort of drunk on that well happens to anybody and, and it talks about that, that, that his bedroom was even separate and that he was kind of away from the group in general, unless he was walking around the house. And so let's talk about a couple of the crazy things that they did. Um, start out with a simple one. These membership drives, they, they would be in the middle of these membership drives and you would see the room was full and they would get about halfway through and people would be like, Nope, <laughs> no, thank yeah. you. And, and they're gone. They're, they're gone out of the group and they want nothing to do with it. And I think this is where you start to see the crazy things because I, I felt like they got more and more desperate as those membership drives went on. The membership was kind of drooping down Everywhere they went, people told them they were kind of crazy. And you see it in the in the one part where uh, uh, Lieutenant O'Hara, I can't think of her name, um, Nichelle Nichols. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, her brother is talking about how dare these people say what we're doing and stuff like that. And you start to see a desperation come from the group members. But no one's there especially like doe to say, all right, everybody calm down. We'll, we'll fix this out. We, the whole time their membership had been going up and down, but it seemed as we got towards the end that it got more and more desperate. And they started saying, this is your last warning. You can come with this or you're going to perish and all that kind of stuff. I'm just wondering in all your research, where did that come from? Where did that desperation all of a sudden build from? I think it was just things were compounding on top of each other. So you have a group who thinks that the, you know, they're reinterpreting the book of Revelation and that um, there's going to be the sort of end times. And so they're sort of waiting for this signal to, to prophecy that. And um, so you have this, this mentality that the world is, is going to be ending. And then you have these, these little steps that happen along the way. Um, 
and you know they see the hail bob comet but even i'll jump back before they even see the comet they are doing these membership drives and being rejected by people both in person to their face and being made fun of but also they are um really talented the group has a lot of really talented website designers and coders back in the early days of the internet and so they try to get their message out there they're made fun of there it's sort of like their early stages of cyberbullying people just telling them to screw off and like that they sound crazy and um so they they feel like where is our you know is our rather than cope with the idea that that their message could be off they say no everyone else is off we don't belong here anymore and we're we are right we the select few have this truth and no one will listen to us we should we should be looking for a way off the planet um so it just makes them more desperate to find any reason to 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 try to exit which once again is a crazy thing again because they say we're not supposed to be here we're supposed to be on a different planet oh by the way do you want to come with us because we got room in the spaceship if you want to get but we're the only ones right. that are right and and you mentioned the websites they were getting bullied but it, it was getting a mass amount of uh, traffic to it in the early days of the internet, a, a ton of people were going to it. Now there's rumor that it's still around and that it's been kept up. That that the website has been kept up uh, by it is. by it, former it, members. To be, and to be fair, though, they only I think recruited one person into the group from the website. Then the total of their existence while they were still here. Oh wow! Um, now the the website is still. Uh, active and two former members um, run it and keep it up, but it has not changed since March of 1997 and looks exactly the same. And I guess that's just for, you know, the thing that I took away from it the most was this was a group that was determined to not be forgotten and they did everything possible to not be forgotten. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we've talked about Jonestown, which they'll never be forgotten what they did. Waco will not be forgotten, but another crazy thing that they did, and we're kind of stepping up the, the, the level here is the castrations. Can we, can we talk about that? Cause when it got to this part in the documentary, I was like, sure. You know, they, they try the first ones, they mess it up. Well, first off, let's say that they put it in a room with the sign of Mexico over it so that if the authorities ever caught them, they could say they went to Mexico. That was where the train went off the tracks for me. And then they get in there and they have this person who was a nurse that worked for a doctor that did stuff like this, but cut too deep, uh, started swelling. They cut the testicles off. They take this guy to the hospital. They throw him in the bay. I mean, and then everyone in the room is like, wow, this, this might not have been a great idea. Let's hold off on it until we can find yeah. someone. Where, first off, where did they come up with this? I know it was to hide, or not necessarily hide, but but mask their sexuality and stuff like that. Did you find anything out of of like the mind state of these people that agreed? Because I think it was a total of nine people did it, right? Yeah, nine of the guys did it eventually over the course of like a year. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it's, that was another part of the story that I had forgotten about, I guess. And I didn't even um, know about it. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a pretty wicked and, uh, reveal in the third episode when we get into that, that it's just like, wait, they're doing what now? <laughs> um, and I mean, but that's how deep into it they were. Some of the, some of the, experts that we talked to who had again have been studying the group for many many years were talked about the castrations and the framing of like they heard that it wasn't even doe's idea initially that it was some of the other group members that are like oh we believe in this and we believe in you in your philosophy so much we're going to take it to the next step and like what did doe what do you think about castration which i think is really an interesting set like just situation because here's Marshall Applewhite. He started this group, and it's almost like it's a it's a a box of his own, a nightmarish box of his own design that sort of is taking over his own life as well. And so he feels like, you know, he has to to go along with it or explain it or do, you know, 
um, go go with the group, even though they're going beyond his original intentions. Um, like one of the one of the influences for me in putting this show together was a lot of the writings of Lawrence Wright, fellow Texan, um, who uh, he wrote The Looming Tower and he wrote Going Clear, the uh, the Scientology book. And for me, I I really love this idea of like the people that started those people that started Al Qaeda, the people that started Scientology. They they started with somewhat benign beliefs, and then as things like as the leaders started to take more and more control, they had to explain some of these things that were unexplainable. Like we, creating a religion is not an easy thing to do, right. and so there's always there's always going to be these deep questions that you have to come up with answers for, and so like yeah, I just remember in going clear in particular, like you see Elron Hubbard having to explain like. Oh, where did our souls come from? Like um, outer space, uh, Zenu. Um, and, and then a volcano you know, like, erupted and a hundred million people yeah. on each ship came. Yeah, that, it's bananas. Like, but you you wonder, yeah. and, and that's where my questions really come. And what stuck out so much to me about this was you have these sociologists in the movie. And they talk about it and they say a lot of people walk away from this and they go, those people must be stupid or whatever. These were like smart people. And you think as a as a normal human being, how can you hear this stuff and go, yeah, that sounds about right? I mean, the stuff that they were yeah. saying is absolutely insane. And it's it's bad to point it out that way because that I think you're right. This group started with shall we say a good intention, but it got to a level where you're like yeah, we're all going to get on this spaceship and we're going to transform and we're going to turn into something else. And you, and you can't, you can't have any private thoughts and you have people have like a check partner who's monitoring your every move yeah. 24 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, it gets way more strict and intense. And, and you look at it and you think, how do these people do it? And, and the only thing I can come up with is they want to be a part of something bigger than them. And they just want to be part of a group. Which, if you look at, well, that, if you look at some of these yeah. people, they had families, they had people that loved them, and they completely stepped away from it. But that's why it's so dangerous. Because as as humans, that's what we all want. We all want community. We all want to fit in. We all want, you know, we all want to be connected to other humans. And so, like, that's the that's the core inside all of us that these uh, groups are preying upon. Um, and so, you know, if, if you find a group of people or a message that makes you feel connected or safe, that you're, you already, they already got your hooks, their hooks in. And, and you're probably not going to back away from it because another interesting thing about this to me was that you would see that people would leave the group and they would be gone for a while and then they would come back into the group and then they would leave the fold yeah. again and then come back into the group. Is it because they're exploring something else? Is it because they're, because it, it, I didn't see that it went into a lot of detail about that in the documentary. It said that they went out and came back and went out and came back, but was it because well, they were exploring something else? They believe something else and then just couldn't find something better or what was it? I think that, that being inside the group was really hard. I think it was, you know, you're, you're sort of um, living in these big houses crammed in with a bunch of people you're, you're moving all the time. Um, they never stayed in any one place more than six months because for various reasons, but one of them, I remember that one of the members said that, uh, you know, they're just trying to stay ahead of the of IRS. They can never pay taxes in one place and like have an address to track and social security numbers. And so they were, they're always um, just tra traveling and um, to go from place to place and, and, um, be sometimes like panhandling for money, but also be or working jobs or is a hard existence. So I think that um, one one uh, family member or um, Kelly Cook's family, um, her parents, they were in and out several times over the years. They would they would stay in for five years, come out, reconnect with her, sort of foster that relationship a little bit, and then after a year, go back and go back for another five years um which was incredibly emotionally 
traumatizing for her. But um, yeah, they, you know, both T and Doe and then eventually Doe's mantra was like, if you don't want to be here, we don't want you here. Um, so people could could come and go. Now, you have to buttress that against the fact that also they're being s- somewhat manipulated to stay. Absolutely. You know? Like, yeah, you can come and go, but also there's a ton of peer pressure and sort of like mental gymnastics in order to get people to try to stay and devote themselves. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that. At one point, there is like Christmas newsletters and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. The leadership, if we'll call it that, is a little worried that if this goes out, families are going to come there and try and get their their family members back. There's going to be a lot of disruption to the group. So they make the decision that, uh, hey, go home and see your families. Go do this and go do that. Some people go out, and I think only one person didn't come back, right? Yeah. Correct. It's just insane to me. Again, they let them go. They see how the real world is, and they go, you know what? I'm headed back. Got to catch the spaceship. Yeah. There's there is a uh, there's a phenomenon, especially in the late seventies, where people there's like cult deprogrammers and people that would you know private investigators like families would hire these people to go track their family members down that were in these groups because the groups a lot of cults were very prevalent in that time mm-hmm. and so they would the family members would hire somebody and get their um get their family members back by like having them kidnapped out of the group uh and they would bring them back to their hometown or their back to their houses and you know go through days or weeks or months of sort of like deprogramming protocols. Um, and that's, that get, look, it gets into a very weird gray area about free will. And so um, that's what T and Doe were worried about was like this, this, that age in particular of the late seventies of people being snatched out of the cults. And they were like, don't want to lose their members who they, they rely upon. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they, they, they sort of felt like, well, We'll, we will let people go back and see their families and then we'll get some of the heat off of us. Um, but we, you had at that point probably 40 members who, you know, it's not a ton of people, but it's 40 people. And they, they thought T and Doe were the, were the second coming for the most part. Literally. Like they be, so, so that's who they were devoted to and, and no one was really going to change their mind. But you talk about free will, and my question that I pose to you is, do you ever really think they had free will in this group? I don't think they did. From the second they step in, they don't have free will. There is very much a a fictionary uh, free will out there. Oh, yeah, you can go see, but, you know, you don't want to do this, and you better take your check partner and all that kind of stuff. So was there ever really any free will in this group? I mean, yeah, it's it's very hard. It's like mostly no, but but here's the here's the caveat. Okay. Um, in my opinion, in my opinion, um, they asked to be brainwashed. So like they are they are actively saying like I don't like who I am. I want you to make me somebody else, and that other person will be completely devoted to you. Um. So like it's. One of the sociologists likened it to the Marines. To me, he's like, you know, going into the Marines is a, is a, it changes your mindset about the world and your perspective. And like, people sign up for the Marines. You're not drafted, right? And um, and you're going in with your eyes open about how you're most likely going to be changed and put in danger and all these things. So like, you know, this was a, this was another version of that, which I think, yeah, it's 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 these are like pretty big questions that are hard to nail down, right? Of like, <laughs> absolutely. How, how, how much free will do we, do we all have? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I just wanted to see, you know, because you have, you would say, I mean, I think you would agree. You have a different perspective than a lot of people in this group. This is a lot of research and talking to a lot of people. So I think you have a lot more insight than the, than the average person to see what it was really like going on, inside their heads. I mean, because you talk to them. So I want to mention a a couple of other things that they start getting a lot more isolated. I feel 
that they got more isolated. Yeah. You, you, they talk about the neighbors waving to them. They won't even say hi to the neighbors when they're in the final house. Um, the only time they go out is with each other. They always have their check partners. And I think this is once again where Doe is really tightening down on the group and really inflicting. I would almost say now he's inflicting his will. This is no more a, hey, teach us the way. This is this is the way. There's no way around it. Right. And so did you, in in all of the research, did you see anybody that was really started to take a second guess at it and like, man, I, I, I just don't know. And, and what were the reasons that they came up with where they said like, man, I, I just, you know, this is not for me. Yeah, there's, I, there's uh, a few examples. I mean, some people certainly uh, left, uh, a couple of people I think left around the time of the castrations. Um, there was, I think there was one out the door <laughs> for sure. But before they, before the castrations, the idea of the, um, just before I think was the first very subtle mention of, um, losing your, as they would say, losing your vehicles or committing suicide in order to make it to the next level. Okay. And that lost a, a couple people. I don't know if you remember a guy in the series named Dick Jocelyn. Um, he was one of the first members in 1975. And so he, had always promised himself that like, I'm never going to kill myself for any cause. And so even though he was about 18 years deep into this group and he had never left, he had never left. Right. As far as I know. But he wasn't um, castrated either, right? When that, he was not. So when that came up in like 1992, it was like the first time that the, the, the mention of it, but not in an overt way, not a like, would you, would you kill yourself right. for the press? But it was like a, Hey, what would, you know, it was, I don't know the exact wording, but it was done in a more subtle way. And Dick saw through the, the, the talking points there and was like, mm, this isn't for me anymore. Just like had a hard line in the sand in his mind and would not cross it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, I think very few, again, there's not, this wasn't like a giant mass of people. These were, it was a fairly small group. But there were certain things that turned people off over the years, which caused their numbers to dwindle um, by the late 90s. But I but I and I totally agree with you. By the time it got to the sorry, the early 90s, by the time it got to the early 90s. It was the group was basically just a reflection of like Doe and his um, his his flaws and his ego. So let's talk about as we're you know, getting towards the end of it, they start doing exit statements, uh, making exit videos and stuff like this. So these guys are like completely committed. Now there's a couple things that I want to point out that I thought were super creepy in your documentary. Uh, okay. The first thing that was super creepy was that song that they sang, uh, where they have the whole group yeah. in the house. I think it's like a Christmas pageant or something that they're having in the house. It's a talent show. Yeah. But that's what I knew. All right. We're full blown bananas now. This this group is gone. Uh, the song was super creepy. Then you talk about the exit statements, and you actually start showing the exit statements uh, and these exit videos. and And these people are like, "This is just another day. Hey, we're out of here." Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of ties to Star Trek, which I'm sure they probably didn't like, and uh, you know because. Her brother was there, uh, and that was one of the shows of the different Star Treks that they could use. But I think, in my personal opinion, the reason he let them watch Star Trek, and I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan or anything like that, but the whole point of Star Trek is is to get to another level, you know, to mm -hmm. travel, see all these different things, and to be at a different place. And I think that that really subliminally hammered his point home. Like, hey, sure. look yeah. how great it is, man. These guys are flying around the universe. They're having a good time. And I I'm, think that I'm not a Star I'm not a Star Trek fan, but I do think that there was an even stronger parallel where like doesn't isn't there a, um, a rule in Star Trek where they're like sort of non-interference? Like they're not supposed yes, to very much uh, so. Uh, but another, and that's that that's uh, what he was promising. It's right. like the next level, we're, we're going to go up there and we will be these 
uh, we'll be in heaven in the next level and we're going to go see other galaxies and start other civilizations, but like, we're not going to interfere with them. We're just going to be ex- doing basically exactly what's happening in Star Trek. Well, and, and uh, I think an even bigger tie-in is the Borg in Star Trek, the, the assimilation that it's, that, you know, you cannot resist the assimilation. And I really think all these things really, I mean, he was a master manipulator. Um, mm. These things, these little subtle things really hammered his point home without him having to look like he was hammering his point home, which is super interesting. So anyway, we'll get back to the exit statement. So they they start making all these exit statements. Everyone seems happy. Some people are doing it by themselves. Some people are doing it with their check partners. All these things. Um, I don't remember. I don't know that he made an exit statement, did he? He did. Uh, th- we actually start um, the the whole series with okay, which so is that essentially is his, his exit. Okay. That's that's his where he's up there and there's sort of this sort of reflected uh, mirroring of the chair, the empty chair that right. represents T. Um, that's his exit statement. And then the next day, all of uh, the the students, all the class does theirs. And and you know, it's about two and a half hours long, and they're all on YouTube. Um, uh, and it's, I mean, it's wild to watch. It is, um, again, it's like, it's really heartbreaking and eerie. Because I really, I don't know if these people really grasp by watching the, the, the exit, because you can watch them all on YouTube. I don't think they really grasped what was getting ready to happen. I think they were so far gone in the brain now being brainwashed and stuff that I don't think they really understood the levity of what was getting ready to happen. Did, did you get the same feeling in talking to people? Uh, I mean, the, the sociologist that we talked to basically said like there was what they amounted to a, a little bit of a sense of relief that they were, they had been following this, this mythology and this person for so long. A lot of them, most of them who ended up committing suicide, most of the 39 were people that had been there for, since 1975 or 76 there's only a very few who were who joined in 92 94 so like you know this is a long time to be following people and traveling around every like like i said it was a grind to be part of the group um so i think that they were seeing this as a way to be like well if this is it this is it and uh, and at least this this grind will be over so it's a it's um that's part of it. And I, and yeah, like the, the, the amount of brainwashing versus, versus the amount of like agency that they're having over knowing what exactly is coming is really hard to tell. Like you can watch the whole exit videos and it is like, you, you feel like you catch moments of people slipping in and out of both of those feelings. Well, and when they talk about certain people, um, you see almost a, a mimicking, um, when they start talking about certain people, they mimic their characteristics when they're talking about that person. And mostly I'm talking about when they talk about T and stuff in them that uh, they, they kind of start mimicking that, that feeling. And it brings me back to the, the point of that, that motherly figure that's in the group, that kind of quiet kind of knows everything that's going on and just a, a completely different role then Doe took in the group. Doe started out being a father figure, but ended up just being a leader of a group. That's it. And I don't think that his followers understood that at the end. Now, when you talk to uh, some of the family members and stuff like that, you I, I think it was uh, T's daughter that said someone had called her and said that, hey, this group killed himself. And she knew exactly who it was. She knew that that was coming. But to take oh, it she a heard step- she heard someone say Father Doe, and she was like, "Oh, I, that's that's them, you right?" Know? And like a lot, a lot of the a lot of the former members immediately knew what had happened when they just heard the initial news reports. Um, that were a lot. Most of the initial news reports were were off base factually, and you know, talking that they were all men or uh, are all women, and um, it was actually there's all I think it was said they were, they were all men, 
But um, yeah, it was really because of the uh, haircuts, right? That they had thought yeah. when they went in there. Now I want to talk about that for a second. So they had planned this stuff out, and this is what I mean by they did not want to be forgotten. They planned this out uh, very, very well. They had sent out uh, letters and stuff and let people know, hey, you're going to come over here at this time. And one of the prior members even came in before the sheriff's department and filmed the entire inside. Whatever happened with all that? Did they? Did they take the film? Did they, whatever happened? Because I thought, wow, that is insane that he's walking around filming this entire thing before, I think it's before he even called anybody. Correct. Yeah. So he got this a guy named Rio D'Angelo who was with the group for a couple of years. Um, and he left like a m- month before the suicides. He left the group. And so um, Doe sent him a letter and said, uh, you know, come down, come come to the the house. He knew exactly where it was. He was staying there just recently. And um, uh, he went in and filmed. And I think Doe wanted him to film to make sure that like the message of like how they, how they had arranged themselves. Like they had planned it so well that they didn't want the the media and the narrative to be um, skewed after, after they were gone. And so yeah, Rio went in, filmed it. It's just, it's bone chilling to see some of this video of him walking around. It's quiet and um, you're just, you know, there's rooms and bunk beds filled with bodies. And uh, so he filmed, I think that the, the video is a few minutes long. Um, and then Rio, you know, Rio was a bit of a, struck a chord in the media. It's a, it's a very unique story. And, um, but I think he was, even further traumatized. Like we didn't get to talk to Rio. I think he's pretty much dropped out of uh, the public eye for now. Um, and yeah, and I don't blame him. Like he's, he, he got put through the ringer a little bit um, back in 97. And so he's done very limited uh, press ever since then. Another point that I want to bring up about these suicides is we've, we've talked this entire conversation about people going and coming back to the group and stuff. You had some people, and I had no idea about this, you had some people that felt so bad that they weren't a part of the group's mass suicide that they ended up killing themselves after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I didn't know that either until um, doing this project. Um, but yeah, there's actually, there, everyone knows that the, the 39, but actually there was three other people. So there's 42 people that lost their lives for this cause. Um and uh, yeah, it's it's a couple of them happened uh, about a month uh, after the the suicides in March of '97, and then another guy um, was about a year later, February of '98. And that was, I think, that was the part that stuck out to me the most was because you look at these guys that did the original '39, and you think, wow, that was crazy that they even allowed that to happen and and they had all these like you said they planned it out so well they had kill teams and second level and third level and all that kind of stuff they did it in shifts yeah right but then you look and you say okay i kind of get what they did i i kind of understand that but then you look at these people that left the group because obviously something told them you need to step away but then had so much remorse when it was over that they finished out the job to catch back up to him. Cause that was the whole point was to catch. They were just going to be late comers to the ship. That's the part that really stuck out to me that how deeply this was embedded into their psyche in order to prove themselves to people that weren't even there anymore. Because no one knows they yeah. did that, that original 39, they have no idea that those guys even did that. Yeah, I mean, look, man, that's it. It is. Uh, it shows the power of like these these whatever story that connects to you that that you are a believer in. Like this is it. Really shows the power of it. Like uh, you know, even after the the main group goes, the the group that you are so connected to, you're gonna find um, a way, no matter how desperate, to try to to try to join them. Like I don't know. I don't know how to ex- explain it either. It's it's really rough. So let me ask you, uh, as we're wrapping this up, what was, what do you think the saddest or the most, uh, jarring story to you was in doing all of the research and everybody that you talked to, what was the one that kind of set you back for a second? You were like, wow, that really happened. Well, I mean, 
man the 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 castrations i it's like it's a hard, it's a hard thing to because i didn't i had sort of forgotten about them and then i really did not sawyer was the second interview that we did and um in the whole process of making the series and like you know uh, hour five into our interview all of a sudden we're, we're breaking down like the the blow by blow of like how people got castrated and i just was like holy shit i i forgot that this happened and um you know hearing the details of it like you said like the mexico and the like it is just it took me aback and like i remember we we finished that portion of the interview and we both were like let's take a time out we'll like take a break we'll come back here in, in a minute um because yeah it's like stomach churning um <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's if there's any other. It definitely wakes you up if you're five hours into an interview. It's definitely going to wake you up when they start talking about it. Right, right. It was like nine o'clock at night. And we, you know, we were like, <laughs> oh my god. I, I, you know, that that is like I said, the castrations and the people afterwards were the two biggest things that that stuck out to me. So while we're wrapping this up. I'll, I'll, Okay, go ahead. I'll, I'll say one one other small anecdote is that, um, you know, there was uh, we found this footage that no one had ever seen before in um, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. in the um, mid to late seventy five and early seventy six, and so there were some people that we found in there that were ended up in the thirty nine who killed themselves, and so that was pretty wild to me. Like deep in the process of making this, we got that footage. Um, like just a couple months before we we wrapped up. And so like seeing these people that I had seen, I'd watched their exit interviews, I'd watched all this stuff of in, you know, footage of them in the 90s. And here one woman in particular, Joyce uh, Scala, seeing her two weeks after she had joined and she's talking about leaving her family. And like, I don't know, that just hit me hard because I was like, oh my gosh, I know this person through one, only through sort of one lens and then here they are right when they joined and it was like knowing that that woman is going to stay in for 22 years was crazy to me and so if i could ask about how did you find that lost footage so uh yeah just uh one of those the the documentary god smiling on you so our one of our editors uh james lesh he was reading a letter that Frank's cousin had written to um, his father. And in the, in the letter, he's like, oh, I wish you guys were here in Oklahoma with us because, um, you know, some, some guys did some filming and it really, like, the taping really showed what our, our message is in a really great way. And so James was like, wait a minute. Oh, let me just look up this guy who he mentions in this letter. And he looks up his name, finds out that the guy still has a video production company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, calls it up. His son answers. The son's like, well, my dad passed away a few years ago. But like, yeah, we have these old tapes, like three quarter inch tapes of um, wow. this group from and it's just sitting in storage and no one has ever contacted him. You know, it's like this just following the little thread of like reading reading the archive we got of like a letter led to this footage um in a warehouse in in oklahoma absolutely insane so you know what let's uh let's take a look at the trailer real quick and we'll wrap this up cool now the end of the age i'm afraid i feel is right upon us this is the biggest cult story in the country this was a voluntary situation they may or may not have been influenced but we'll never know that but at this point, this is considered a mass suicide investigation. Tiendo gave us the tools to brainwash ourselves. Literally wash out our humanness from our brain. The basic idea of Heaven's Gate was that you would chemically and biologically transform your body, becoming a next level alien. And then you would physically get on board the UFO, which would sail off into heaven. It says Heaven's Gate away team. 39 to beam up. No. You know, everybody wants to think, oh, those are those crazy people. I would never do that. Do I look brainwashed? <laughs> yeah. 
Mm, not so fast. They were well-educated, often from very good families. Me, a, a 10-year-old, I didn't believe that. And I would never, ever speak to them again. I am well and safe as of now. That was code. When you're coming home, I never. T and Doe were paranoid and constantly on the move. And the FBI said there's really not much we can do about this group. Doe said, we're going to proceed doing the castration. Who's going to go first? Do exactly as I say, and you will not know death. By killing themselves, they ensured their immortality. They signed out. Hasta la vista, baby. People say, who do you think you are? Is this a cult if I ever heard one? Yes, it is. It's a cult. I mean, it's the cult of cults. We'll see you in our next session. It's a very short time before our departure. Clay, I'm telling you, man, you knocked it out of the park with this one. Absolutely so a much. fantastic documentary. Uh, well, thank you for having me, and thanks for the uh, the deep dive conversation. Yeah, so uh, anything that you want to promote real quick before we get out of here? No, man, just go to HBO Max, check out the show, um, and, you know, excited to, to have people watch it. Yeah, guys, that's uh, that's going to be it for the show tonight. Definitely go check this out. Heaven's Gate, it's on HBO Max. That's the only place you can find it. It is a fantastic documentary. If you want more of, of us, go to Twitter at DoublespeakDJ, Facebook at the DTD Podcast, or at YouTube at the DTD Podcast. That's going to be it for tonight, guys. Go check out this film for sure. That's Clay. I'm DJ. That's been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you, guys.